0: Welcome to episode 184 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today I'm joined on the podcast by the prolific multi-hyphenate writer. Uh, he's a novelist, a screenwriter, and a principal in the publishing house, Brash Books, Lee Goldberg, to talk about his just-published, Lost Hills. Welcome back to Speaking of Mysteries, Lee.
1: It's great to be here. I can't believe you've done 184 shows. I think I may have been like your third or fourth show. You were
0: my third, ago. either my third or fourth, and then uh in looking through uh the past episodes, you are also the 140th
1: episode. My so, god. You're you're running longer than Gone Smoke.
0: Well <laughs> Yes, but back when I started, I think uh, there were few podcasts, and now I'm beginning to think um, maybe there might be over-saturation, but I have faith that people enjoy speaking of mysteries, so there you go.
1: We'll try to keep it interesting. I'll read aloud some of the sex scenes from my book.
0: Um You know, I follow you on Facebook, so I know that you're capable of doing it, but I have a a PG rating in the Apple store, so we can't get into that.
1: Now, that wasn't from my book. That was something I overheard the other day on my book tour when I was in a hotel.
0: Wow. Um, I will direct listeners to Lee Goldberg's Facebook page to find out what we're talking about, and it's worth a visit. Anyway, congratulations on on Lost Hills, and thank you for introducing Eve Ronan, the youngest female homicide detective in the history of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department, to the world of procedurals.
1: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure for me and, and a challenge. It's not like anything else I've written before.
0: So let's talk about Eve starting with her name. Uh, I readily admit I'm fascinated by how writers name characters, um, and her full name is Eve Ronan. Eve is the Western world's proto woman, and Ronan is a samurai without a master. Have I broken the code?
1: You have broken the code. And I was going to get a little more specific about the name in the first book and ended up cutting it. I'll I'll probably put it in one of the later books. Her given name was actually Eve Ronan, R-O-N-A-N. But her mother, an aspiring actress, saw the possibilities in changing the name and changed the spelling to R-O-N-I-N. And uh, Eve, when she was a kid, was kind of embarrassed by that. But no one else seemed to know what Ronan meant, and she was able to... Get away!
0: In spite it. of the fact that there was a De Niro movie of that name,
1: I don't know that many people saw the De Niro movie. Now I saw it fifty-eight times, but that's because it's a long story. But they were trying to turn it into a TV series, and I was involved in that aborted effort.
0: That might have been a good thing, um, considering the movie.
1: Yeah, I, I never understood how that would be a TV series. It was, which is one reason why it didn't become one. But it was basically car chases. I ended up working with a company that did the car chases on a, on a different project. So it wasn't a wasted experience. But I, I did spend a lot of time watching that film.
0: Eve gets the nod for this promotion in the sheriff's department. After a video of her schooling with great physicality, an actor who was abusing his girlfriend goes viral. And promoting her, you know, for the sheriff's department, promoting her is good publicity. And it's a nice distraction because the organization is reeling from scandal after scandal. And Eve, of course, takes guff from her fellow sheriff deputies, uh, which I maintain she would get anyway. But she's also aware enough to jump at the opportunity. And so is there a moral dilemma here for Eve?
1: No, she's not ashamed whatsoever in playing politics to get her job because, as you said, she would have faced that same sexism and doubt regardless. In fact, she may never have gotten the position she's in if not for that viral video and the way she leveraged it to get the job. So she's unapologetic about playing the game and playing it well, unlike other detectives in this genre of novels who— who don't wanna get near politics or don't understand politics or think politics are tainted. In in some ways, she may be better at playing the politics than she is at doing her job. And that's not because she's inept, it's because she doesn't have experience yet. She's only in her early 20s, and she took the opportunity when it came her way, but she is as aware as anybody else that she doesn't deserve it yet and doesn't have the experience yet, but she'll be damned if she's gonna walk away from it. So she's in an interesting position in this case, And that excited me as a writer. I'm tired of reading police procedurals about heroes who are deductive geniuses and supremely self-confident, but aren't recognized for their skills by their bitter or blind or political superiors. I wanted a very different kind of character, one who makes mistakes, one who isn't so self-assured, who has a gift. There's no question she's actually really good at what she does, but she doesn't yet have the experiences to master her skills to to direct them in, in the right way. So she makes some big mistakes, and I think that makes her a more realistic character, more interesting to read, and certainly more fun to write.
0: It's interesting how some of these things sort of get out into the zeitgeist, for want of a better word. Um, in the morning show, Reese Witherspoon's character is also. Hurtled into this, uh, into her position as a co-anchor because of a video that goes viral.
1: And well, that was in her job. She still was a experienced reporter in a local station. Not exactly. And I, I watched the show, so I know exactly what you are talking about. But she is a disruptor uh, in the morning show, and Eve Ronan is a disruptor in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department.
0: So it's refreshing. It's refreshing for me as a viewer and a reader. I agree with you completely. It's very refreshing uh, to have a, a protagonist in a procedural that's neither an alcoholic nor, you know, on the, on the other side of failed marriages and broken homes, and And I find that refreshing, and also the fact that, that she's a woman, and she's dealing with a lot of things that I think only women have to deal with, but I'm curious about how you built the story and what came first. Was it the character of Eve, which is, includes her backstory, or the crime of the discovery of a gruesome murder with the added pressure of having to investigate before the wildfires, uh, Southern California wildfires, destroy all the evidence? And you do address this a little bit in, in your afterward, but I, I wanna hear you say it.
1: The crime came first. I was a finagled my way into a homicide investigators training conference in Wisconsin. This is something that professional homicide investigators have to do to recertify, I guess, for their badges, at least in Wisconsin. They have to attend 24 hours of education each year to stay up to date on the latest forensics, laws, investigative techniques, that sort of thing. I, I got myself into this as one of two civilians attending to research a different book that I had in mind. I just wanted to pick up some interesting facts and dialogue and techniques, nothing in particular, but just something that would give me some verisimilitude that would help my book seem more realistic. And at this seminar, they presented a case as an example of why it is important to approach each homicide as if you've never investigated a homicide before, to leave your homicide investigator's common sense at home, to become a... Homicide virgin, so to speak. Because if you didn't, you wouldn't have solved this case. And it was a fascinating case. It it, it grabbed my imagination right away. And I couldn't get it out of my head, and I, I ended up jettisoning the book I had jettisoning the book I had in mind and and developing a book based on this story instead. And I thought about the character that I would need for this story. If the requirement to solve the case is to not have to ignore the police common sense you've, you've built up over years of investigating homicides, maybe better if I had a, a neophyte, someone who had never investigated a homicide before. But that begs reality because, I don't think that's the right phrase, it, <laughs> it doesn't fit into reality because homicide investigators are usually very experienced. It takes a long time for them to get to that, that sought after promotion to be a homicide investigator. So I had to come up with a way to put somebody in that position who shouldn't be there and didn't have the experience necessary to get that promotion. And so the Eve Ronan character just started to develop based on the needs of the story, plus my own fatigue with the police procedural cliches. I didn't want a a seasoned, bitter, sour character haunted by the serial killer case that he did or the family that was massacred or the time he spent in the war or whatever. I wanted someone who was a a blank slate. But we all have problems. We all have backstory. We all have baggage. So why not give this character the kind of baggage that you and I and everybody else shares? Not something ridiculous like there was a serial killer who got away and I'm haunted by that serial killer now or whatever. I wanted someone more human, more relatable than I was seeing in police procedurals today. And then the case actually happened in Ohio. I moved it to Los Angeles, but that presented me with another challenge. There have been so many police procedurals, so many great ones, written in Los Angeles. Forget about the movies and TV shows, just the books. I'd be competing with Michael Connelly and Joseph Wambaugh, Raymond Chandler, all these people, and I couldn't do better than them. I'd just be retreading what they did. So that forced me to come up with a new approach to telling a cop story in L.A., and I set the story in a portion of Los Angeles I've never seen written about before. And that's the Lost Hills jurisdiction of Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department.
0: Well, you, you anticipate my questions as, as any good writer would. Um, I think you, you capture the vagaries of our, our greater Los Angeles jurisdictional quirks really well, and I'll tell you a little story. I got into an accident at the intersection of Mulholland Drive and Mulholland Highway about <laughs> 10 years ago. Oh, it gets better when a motorcycle being chased by LAPD collided with me in the intersection. And it was a nightmare on all levels, including where exactly the collision took place. But that is a great setup for the story because that's the first death that she encounters that she has to investigate is a jurisdictional uh, kerfuffle.
1: Yes, and, and and they're real. I have a friend, Paul Bishop, who is twice named Homicide Detective of the Year. He ran their sex crimes unit, and he would tell me about some of these jurisdictional disputes. Now, in the city of Calabasas, it's kind of helpful they've stuck boulders at the city limits on some of these streets, but still you can't see the invisible lines of demarcation if you could. It's really strange how the city wraps around um, L.A., But there are places where it's not so clear when you're in the Santa Monica Mountains or in Topanga somewhere where you you don't know. Half the body could be in Los Angeles and half the body could be in L.A. County or half the body could be in L.A. County and half the body in Ventura County. It's a constant squabble over who's going to take the case, whether it's Park Rangers, whether it's Ventura County Sheriff, whether it's LAPD, whether it's Los Angeles County Sheriff. And I wanted to capture some of that. But What I really wanted to get, though, was the sense that the Lost Hills jurisdiction is a unique island within metropolitan Los Angeles. It is surrounded by Ventura County, Woodland Hills, and the Pacific Ocean, (laughs) Santa Monica Bay. And in the midst of this island, you have the very rich neighborhoods of Malibu and Calabasas and Hidden Hills, but you also have the hippy-dippy neighborhoods of Topanga, you have trailer parks, you have rural ranches, you have state parks, you have uh, local parks, you have uh, Hollywood backlots. It's, it's an amazing uh, city or, or almost like a country unto itself that also reflects all the different aspects of Los Angeles. And I, I could write books based in this area forever. It's, there's no shortage of stories within the Lost Hills jurisdiction of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department.
0: Well, hold that thought till our last question, because another thing this book captures is how completely the production industry permeates Southern California. So a bedraggled Eve appears at a press conference and her mother, who you mentioned, uh, who makes her living as an aspiring actress sort of on the edges of the industry with a capital I, calls her to tell her that the camera loves her. Um, And sworn officers are boasting about the A-listers they know, how many have worked for them as private security or as consultants. And so this is sort of a great example of what I call celebrity by association. And it's a u- unique L.A. game, and it's something that could be helpful and frustrating. And and Eve sort of embodies this state.
1: And that was high, totally intentional on my part. I don't think it's possible to live in Los Angeles, no matter what you do here, and not be touched by the entertainment industry, because the entire city, every street, is a Hollywood backlot. They shoot TV shows and movies all over Los Angeles. It's impossible not to encounter the industry in some way, shape, or form. Every restaurant you go into or dry cleaner has photographs of actors who are their customers and signed and framed on the wall. The Lost Hill Station, one of the reasons it's sought after by uh, detectives is its proximity to Hollywood and the media and celebrities. But that's also a minefield. That's the station where uh, Mel Gibson was arrested. That's the station where Matrice Richardson walked out the door and disappeared until her body was found in Malibu Canyon. It's they, they hobnob with the wealthy and the famous and the powerful, but that also puts them under a spotlight. I just thought that was a very interesting, volatile, and explosive mix. Plus, Eve got her job because she manipulated the media. So she can't then complain about the media and and culture being part of her world. So she has an uneasy relationship with Hollywood and the press and the media and fiction and fact that she has to navigate. And that's fascinating to me. It's always been fascinating to me. It was pointed out to me by another interviewer recently—I didn't know it until then—that this has been a theme in virtually all of my books, this clash between fact and fiction, media and and privacy and what popular culture expects of us and what we actually can deliver. And we're all shaped by that, especially now that we all have phones that can put us on the internet and in front of an audience of millions in an instant.
0: Well, and I th- and I think you handled this differently. Uh, first of all, the other interviewer uh, is quite right. I'd like to give him or her my props for that. I hadn't thought of that, and I've read many, many of your books. But you also, as you said, you you... Eve is very self-aware and she understands that she's manipulating the media to her own advantage and she and and it's easy to see in in the discussions with her mother how she sort of has formed her approach and what you say is very very true. I live in Los Angeles. I live in the San Fernando Valley. Half the time I can't get out of my street because there's something being filmed. Um and You know, we have to be quiet or, you know, they stop our cars. And and that's something, you know, the Oscars are coming. They're going to close Hollywood Boulevard for two weeks. I mean, this is just the kind of thing that the city of Los Angeles has to put up with. If you live practically anywhere, you're going to live near a screenwriter or someone who's below the line lighting, uh, someone who, a grip a camera operator, a director of photography. It's just, it's everywhere. This is, where, this is where it lives. This is where Hollywood lives. So, but you, unlike other procedural writers, that shall remain nameless. You don't necessarily make this a pain in the ass for them. As you said, this is something that they sort of digest and approach in a way that can help them.
1: Yes, they, they look at it as a fact of life here. There's another aspect of Hollywood and Los Angeles that is more subtle and less obvious, and that is because every street practically and every building has been used in a TV show to be Los Angeles or to be someplace else. Deja vu is a constant occurrence here. You you go somewhere you've never been before in LA, but you recognize it because it's been someplace else. You've seen it in a movie, you've seen it in a TV show, you've seen it Pretending to be Miami or New York, so so the we're all part of that Hollywood backlot here, and it's inescapable. And as you mentioned, the below the line, above the line, that's a, a budgetary um, yes. comment. The way referring to the budgets in a Hollywood production, but it, we are an industry town. Just like Detroit is an industry town, so it, it really is impossible to go through life in Los Angeles without knowing somebody in some aspect. Of the entertainment industry. In my own life, I'm a writer, producer. I've written and produced thousands of hours of television. I create a TV series that's on Hallmark uh, right now and in production. But my my brother-in-law is a grip. My sister's a lawyer who has celebrity clients and studio clients. My brother is a writer whose book is being made into a TV show. I, I have the industry, all around me, my next door neighbor is an Oscar Award-winning actress, and I have a guy across the street who's a costume designer. It's just—it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Every, oh, even you know, my daughter, who you know, isn't in the industry, she's an office manager for an accounting firm, but the accounting firm has all kinds of entertainment industry clients. So you really can't—you can't get around it. And you, growing up in Calabasas, as my daughter did, she was so surrounded by celebrity, so to speak, or television and film, that she's completely casual about, about fame. You know, she runs into somebody famous. She doesn't pay any attention to them. They're just normal people. It's uh, if you, in Calabasas in particular, there's so many people so close to the industry that when you run into celebrities in restaurants or movie theaters or in line at the grocery store, nobody pays any attention to them. It's just somebody else buying groceries or seeing a movie or having a meal. It's really interesting. It's only the outsiders, people from out of town, who, who, who gawk, uh, or if it's somebody who's in in the midst of a scandal, and you have paparazzi following them. But other than that, everyone takes it here very casually and makes no big deal about it.
0: I do peek at their at their uh, carts though to see what they're buying.
1: Yeah, I think it's so funny. I won't <laughs> name the famous couple, but there was a famous couple at my, at my Ralphs, and you know they had. They were so beleaguered. Their kids were screaming and everything. And without the makeup, they were just another couple with screaming kids. And you look at their grocery cart, and it's the same, you know, tampons and underarm deodorant and breakfast cereal and stuff that we all buy. There is no difference except that they're famous.
0: It is, it is a fact of life in Los Angeles. It is something that, as you mentioned, and I'm hoping, this gets us to our concluding question about EVE, That I mean, I loved Ian Ludlow, and I loved that your first Ian Ludlow novel, but I hope we're going to see Eve in more novels because I think this is the procedural that people have been waiting for. At least I have.
1: Oh, you're definitely going to be seeing more of her. The second book is already completed and edited and is coming out in January of 2021. It's called Bone Canyon, and it picks up three weeks after Lost Hills. You don't have to have read Lost Hills to enjoy Bone Canyon, but if you have, it will be it'll flow seamlessly from that book to the sequel. And she's dealing with all the after—not after effects, but consequences of of the events in Lost Hills, and the new media situation she finds herself in. And, and
0: I, it, think, I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: Oh, so it's it's interesting because I I don't want my character to be unaffected by the cases she solves. One of the clichés of this genre is they don't have any lasting impact, the previous cases, for the most part. It's like episodic television. But I want her to be impacted. She's growing and changing. We're seeing the evolution of a character and a detective through these books. We're going to see her grow. If I'm fortunate enough to be able to keep doing the series, she'll be, not Harry Bosch, but using that as an example, she won't become that confident that season of detective for eight or nine more books. It's going to take time before she gets to that place, but her life will change a lot along the way because she can't be unaffected by the cases she's solving and the media attention that comes with them.
0: And I think uh, we can talk about, this will be sort of uh, the coda after the last question, At the very end of the book, also in the afterword, you talk about the wildfires and uh, how you had written this book. And there is a wildfire and the sort of the bearing down of a wildfire. She's got to complete her investigation before the area burns up Um, that you were evacuated. And I remember uh, following you on Facebook and thinking about you and thinking about your dogs because we actually took in some people's dogs that we knew that were evacuated that the wildfire must have affected her, and the wildfire that you wrote about actually sort of came to pass. If you were evacuated and the wildfire you describe in your book was happening, and it had already been, you'd already pushed send.
1: It was so weird to have written about a fictional wildfire, then have it come true exactly the way I described it. And then to find myself evacuated, sitting in my sister's house with my other sister who lives in the neighborhood and all of our dogs and cats and everything, editing the galley about where I wrote about the fire and seeing it on screen live the way I described it. It was really weird and really brought home to me the intersection of fact and fiction. But it has a lasting impact on Eve because book number two picks up in the aftermath of the fire with the blackened hills of Santa Monica Mountains, the the blackened slopes of the Santa Monica Mountains, and all the bodies that have been revealed. This is true. After all this vegetation burned, some of which that hadn't burned in 30 years, all kinds of bodies that have been dumped into the canyons and dumped into the vegetation and went unseen— were revealed by the denuded hillsides. Bones toppled down from the top of hillsides all the way to the bottom of canyons where they'd been dumped five, ten years ago or three months ago. It's, it's, they found lots of missing people that they didn't know about. They found cars. They found even a crashed airplane. It, it was astonishing what the hills gave up after the fires. So it was, um, it was a natural way into my second novel.
0: Well, I look forward to it. I enjoyed Lost Hills. I think I really, truly think this is the procedural that uh, our region, even, even though you mentioned there have been many, many writers that have written procedurals, great writers, Michael Connolly, of course, uh, T. Jefferson Parker, Robert Craze, all of these people, and I think you are in that pantheon with them.
1: That's very, very kind of you to say. I I know I was very flattered that Michael Connolly gave me such a warm review for Lost Tales. That meant a lot.
0: Well, thanks again, Lee, for talking to us. I hope that the podcast is around to talk to you about Bone Canyon.
1: I look forward to being on episode 230.
0: (laughs) Thanks again.